Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO podcast brought to you by WeCare365. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and we hope there will be lots of insights for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Our guest today is Olivia Carr, founder and CEO of Silk, a global brand that sells silk pillowcases in over 50 countries. Despite a challenging childhood and lacking tertiary qualifications, Olivia has built a successful multi-million dollar business. She shares her remarkable journey, including a real marketing coup involving Kim Kardashian and Kylie Jenner. Just amazing. In her new book, Self Made, Olivia has created a blueprint that has helped hundreds of women to develop and build their own businesses. Olivia's resilience and bounce back quality and innovative approach have transformed her life, making her a true self-made entrepreneur. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome Olivia Carr to The Caring CEO. Welcome, Olivia. It's nice to be here. What does care in the workplace mean to you? That's such a, such a great question. Um, the first word that comes to mind for me is probably connection. And I think that's not just connection with my team, but it's connection with, you know, the guy that comes to pick up the Aussie Post orders every day. It's, it's caring is making sure that when somebody walks through those doors that we have interaction with every day, that I am in tune with, I guess, how they're feeling. I, I can read, um, I can read how the team are feeling. And to me, that's probably what care means in the workplace is that you are so present that you actually are so highly attuned to what's going on around you. And uh, you've had a very interesting journey, Olivia. You know, you're now the founder of Silk, but you've had a very interesting life in getting there. Mm-hmm. I'm just hearing for our listeners a little bit about that journey. Yeah. Um, you know what? I might. I, I don't think I've ever done this in an interview. I usually start at the, the point of turning pregnant at 19. But I actually think that this is probably the right place to talk about where my journey kind of really started, and that was from a really young age. Um, so sadly, I grew up in a house where my dad was an alcoholic. He's Scottish, so he's lived a really hard life. Um, he was born in the 40s, so I imagine his upbringing was really challenging, and I can genuinely kind of appreciate that. And as an adult now, I appreciate probably why I had the childhood I had. But in saying that, that really did kind of shape some of the poor decision-making that I made early on in my life, which led me down a path of um, a little bit of recklessness, I'll say. You know, I started drinking really early. I was like 12, I think, when I first experienced half a bottle of vodka, which cannot be good for a 12-year-old. You know, 13, when I started experimenting with, you know, drugs and just mixing with the wrong crowds. Like I had no role models around me. I didn't have any good role models role modeling at home, no real sense of what love looked like or connection, um, which is interesting because connection is something I value hugely today. And then it was during that kind of period, I mean, none of this I knew at the time, like it's only on reflection going through a lot of work over the last few years with my own mental health that I've been able to kind of go through this process. But a lot of that makes sense as to how I ended up 
starting the life that I started, which was falling pregnant at 19 and then getting myself stuck in a really kind of downward spiral financially um, for my entire 20s. Raising a child alone young was tough. I think I definitely had postnatal depression, but 23 years ago, it was not hugely recognized. But again, on reflection, I look back and I think, oh, I think some of those thoughts you were having, probably a signal that there might have been something going on there. Um, but again, it all of these things, whilst they were really challenging to live through, what they did do, which was incredible, is they taught me how to overcome adversity because, you know, you kind of have two choices in life. You either stay stuck in the hole and and spiral or you do whatever you can to climb your way out. And I think I was blessed that I was so young and naive in a lot of ways of just how much I was struggling and it just gave me this inner kind of strength and tenacity to just do whatever it took to turn my life around, um, which thankfully I have. But, you know, there's many, and I'll, I'll allow you to ask questions, but there's many moments, pivotal moments along the way that I was able to turn the life around. But it, my start in life was super challenging, as I'm sure many listeners, you know, we all we all have a story and we all have challenges and adversity, but yeah, it, it was tough. And you mentioned how tough it was, you know, growing up in a household where there was one parent as an alcoholic. Did you have other siblings? I did. So I have a sister who's three years older. Um, and so not only was there alcohol abuse, my father was, there was domestic violence happening at home as well. So I was the youngest uh, and I sided with my dad, um, not because, you know, I didn't know any better, to be honest. So as young as I can remember, I kind of went on his side and I've since learned now that that was my kind of defense or my protection to myself. Mm. Sadly, my sister parted with my mum, so she copped a lot more of the abuse than I did. But yeah, that was, that was tricky. Mm. Yeah. You went through also describing the part from, you know, your early twenties or your twenties, um, and it was a time when you were a single mum. And and so I probably assume that, um, you know, the income wasn't always predictable enough. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So my first job um, was a real estate agent. So I was probably 20 at the time. Um, and it's probably similar today. Real estate agents don't actually earn an income as such. You get a retainer. And I remember back then it was $19,000 a year and childcare, just to put that in perspective. So my daughter went to childcare from six weeks of age. It's the youngest they could go. She was the first dropped off and the last picked up because I always tried to work hard. But the reality was that daycare back then was still about $95 a day. You'd get a little bit of government subsidy, but nowhere near enough to cover it. I then had rent and I was earning a really, really low income. Uh, and a lot of that was linked to the fact that I was so young. Uh, and again, real estate probably wasn't the best job to choose because, you know, the retainer works that you kind of, when you finally do sell some homes, you're then back paying the retainer that you've been paid. So in order to make money in that career, you need to be in it for a long time. Uh, but again, I didn't know any of this. So naturally, I kind of was living way beyond my means and I started falling into some really severe uh, financial debt. By the age of about 26, I was about $100,000 in debt. I just had my second child. And this is funny, fascinating, very strange, but majority of that debt started with CityLink fines, like the road tolls, where, you know, they were back then they were about $3 a trip because I was working full-time getting from house to house with real estate. And a CityLink fine would be the lowest on my priority of bills that I needed to pay. 
Uh, so they just weren't getting paid. And sure enough, over time, that $3 turns into $10, turns into 100 turns into a warrant for your arrest, which is about $300 a fine. And that added up to just under just under $100,000 where I eventually ended up in the Melbourne Magistrates Court facing potential prison time for my debt. So that was another rock bottom moment, but also a life turning moment to turn my life around. And what was it that, you know, obviously that's a crisis. Um, <laughs> were there any other factors in you turning your life around or was it just very much self-directed and self-made? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, gosh, and there were so many other things, like the CityLink was just one element of it, but I remember having an A4 binder uh, and it was thick of debt collection letters um, and it got to the point where I was just so numb to the situation of what was happening around me. I just could not work out a way out, but I almost just blocked it. I almost just literally went into severe denial, could not get on top of it. And I think the only thing that actually made me get on top of it was the day that I literally, I remember calling my dad and saying, dad, this this literally could be it. Because depending on the judge and depending on, I guess, I don't know how it all works and what they thought that day, I genuinely could have spent one day in prison for every $1,000 I owed, which was how it worked. And I think I was blessed. I got a great judge who could see I wasn't trying to be a criminal. I was genuinely, you know, doing it tough. But I think that day in that court, because I was faced with such a harsh reality of where my life was at, that I knew I had to at that point, I knew I had to take some serious action. Well, firstly, now that I'm older, I can acknowledge that, you know what, what I potentially could have done in my 20s is chosen to not drive on the highway, actually take the longer way and avoid the $3 fine, like that's where the ownership piece comes into it and the accountability. Um, but again, at the time, I probably wasn't mature enough to think like that, if I'm honest. Um, and that's where, though, when I went to, to court that day, I realised, well, you know what, I'm going to have to make some decisions with my career. I'm going to have to start earning more money. I'm going to have to start doing some side hustles. I'm going to have to start building, like, it's up to me to get myself out of this. There's no no more making excuses. There's no more poor me. I mean, I played the I played the poor mum, poor 19-year-old mum card for too long. And, you know, it was poor me for a while, but at some point, okay, cool. Now you chose to take this path, I guess, and you need to have full ownership of it and do whatever it takes. And that's essentially where the, the start was for me to turn my life around. And what were some of those first steps? If you think about, you know, the week that followed your appearance in court, what were mm. the steps that you took? Ugh, this one was terrible. Like, it was painful. Um, literally calling every single person I owed money to and setting up payment plans and begging. And I think, you know, the good thing about something like COVID happening is I think there's so much more empathy now from, uh, you know, utility companies or if you call up the bank and say, I'm, you know, I'm really doing it tough, I think there's a lot more empathy and understanding. But again, this is all, you know, quite a while ago, calling up a credit card you know, team and saying, hey, I really can't make that payment, but can you work out like a payment plan? It was really tough back then. Mm. And I had to have those conversations time and time again and kind of get it to a perfect art where I could almost pay everything off in total from, you know, when I first started falling into debt. It took me 14 years to pay everything off from beginning to end. Mm. But I, I then had to go and get a, a better job. I had to go and do literally whatever it took to get on top of it. There was no more ignoring it. I mean, one of the things I talk about in my book is you actually do need to open your bills 
Like if you're going through financial hardship, just putting them in the top drawer, doing what I did, getting to the point where you no longer open them, it's only going to escalate and then it's only going to make the matter worse because you will get late fees and you will get penalties and you will get, you know, marks on your credit file like I did. Like it starts with the basic open the letter, make a phone call, Mm -hmm. ask for help. Mm -hmm. Uh, Asking for help is a big one. It's something that took me way too long to learn the power of. Like, you know, put your pride aside, put the ego aside, just tell the truth. You cannot afford to pay the bill and ask for help. And so that, um, I guess, was the beginning of taking financial responsibility and, and getting your life back on track. What about your career then? What changes did you decide to make in your career? Um, again, this probably comes back to me preventing my own growth in a way because I left school at 16. Uh, so I didn't finish VCE in Melbourne. Um, and I left school actually to study acting, so not just to completely drop out like the headlines love to say. I actually did it to study acting. Um, but it didn't really help me get a corporate role back then. But I I always had this limiting belief, I guess, that, oh, I didn't finish high school, so I can't go for, you know, a senior role. And during that process, I realised that, you know what, I have lived such a life. I've had so much real life experience that I think that that's so valuable to an employer that I actually started going for jobs that, you know, would usually require an MBA or would usually require you know, my, my previous job to starting Silk was a general manager at Pacific Brands, so Bonds and Sheridan, and, and the guy that was in it prior to me was doing his MBA. And I was like, you know what, I know I could run rings around this guy because I have the street smarts. I have the, I don't know, I have a different skill set and I just had to back myself and start going for these roles. It's kind of like I say, you've got to ask for help. You've also got to put yourself in the ring, right? You've got to give yourself a chance. And mm. And I actually did end up getting the job. Yeah, fantastic. And and so how did that then pan out? What was the title of that role? Yeah, so I was the general manager for Pacific Brands. Yeah. Well, that's a big step up from being a, a um, real estate agent in terms of yeah. <laughs> that's Most people yeah. describe that as a, a huge step. Um, yeah. So, there were a few steps in between, so right. I didn't go straight into that role. Right. Um, I actually had my first business when I was 24. So I set up a business for four years. I won uh, the Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2007, uh, Best Startup in 2008, got burnt out, walked away, went and worked for the National Breast Cancer Foundation uh, for a while. I also had a job, but this was probably instrumental to my mindset. I actually got a job as a sales uh, manager for a personal development uh, company where I was just in and around mindset stuff all the time. And it was from there that I then took the leap to the GM role. And who was particularly influential in that personal development role? I'm sure you would have seen lots of speakers, lots of yeah. books, lots, lots of CDs at the time probably. Um, who was particularly influential to you? You know, it was actually the guy that was running the business. His name's Andrew Henderson. He lives in Queensland, um, but he did live in Melbourne. And I actually feature him in the book, he was my first mentor in life. He was a fascinating or is a fascinating uh, man in the sense that he has come from very humble beginnings but has used the power of reading, you know, positive mindset, personal development. And he got into real estate at a young age and kind of built himself from nothing. Mm. Uh, and I guess I learned from him just how powerful what you put into your mind and, and the daily mind training 
it really can change where you are at life. Like it's, you are one decision away, one thought, one action. You just have to believe it. You just have to, yeah. I um, interviewed probably about a year ago a lady called Suzanne Steele and she's now the managing director for Adobe in the UK and Europe. She had a very similar path to you in that she you know, didn't qualify uh, didn't have any personal qualifications, but like you, got a really great mentor who could see the potential. And uh, so you might be interested to have a listen to her because it's uh, extraordinary, you know, and how yeah. on as well, really insightful. When did you decide that you didn't want to work for other people anymore? I am a terrible employee, um, so I'll admit that. Uh I think it's just in it's in my personality. I'm very hard to manage. Um, not hard to manage in the sense it's just I have so many ideas and unfortunately if you're working in a corporate, there's process and <laughs> things that you have to follow and, and it's just I don't run at that slow pace. Mm. So I knew I was always going to find it challenging to work somewhere for a long time just because I found it really frustrating. And after having my first business in my 20s, I knew the joy, the passion from creating something and making impact. So it was only a matter of time. And I think I'm, I'm truly grateful for the opportunity that I was given at Pacific Brands. Um, I had the most amazing CEO at the time, John Pelez, who used to be, I think he was ex-Fosters. He was what I would call a people leader. Like he was so heart driven. I actually left at the time that he was moved out of the business. And then we got the CFO uh, so you're now going from a people heart led leader to a numbers led leader. And it was, it was really great to see the difference between that. Mm. Um, but coming back to your first question, what does care look like in the workplace? I would say that he epitomized what care looked like. And I, I always felt that. And when he left, I guess my love of that role had left a little bit as well. Um, but it was around that time, about 10 years ago, that I started to understand what e-commerce was. And I was like, this is really interesting. Like there's so much potential and anything where I think there's untapped potential is always going to get me very curious. Uh, so I decided it was probably time. I was getting very itchy to kind of do my own thing. I'd cleared all my debt only just. It was like literally the same year that I was finally, let's call it debt free. Uh, I had no credit cards. I'd got rid of all of it. And some people might be like, well, why would you jump? I mean, I can openly share. I was 34. I was earning 210,000 plus bonuses at that role, which I think for a woman who hasn't finished school and that was my first kind of senior role was quite a healthy uh, salary. Yes. Why on earth would I then finally get on my feet and then jump? Um, but I guess that's that's who I am as well. It's like I'm not kind of I'm not scared to take a risk even after how hard my life had been. Um, and I just knew it was time. And so I decided in 2015 to kind of back myself again take on a whole lot of risk uh, and start a, start a brand. So it's been a journey. Why choose sh silk? Yeah, uh, I've always slept on silk. So any of your female listeners will probably know um, hairdressers recommend them all the time. They're really good for your hair. If you get your hair blow dried, they prolong your blow dry. So it's as simple as that. I loved them. And I went to America once when I left Pacific Brands to see you know, the world of opportunity, what might I do next? And it was on that first night that my pillowcase was taken away with the housekeeping. So when I returned home five weeks later, I was like, oh, I've got to pay $100 to replace it. Like, that's annoying. Like, silk's expensive. And I just wanted a zip, like a hidden zipper. 
uh, and I couldn't find one anywhere in the world. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I mean, if I want one, why don't I just make one? And three days later, I went over to China and learned everything about silk and thought, you know what, I'll give myself six months. If this doesn't work, I'll go back and get a job. So that's kind of how I started. It's a simple story and uh, it hasn't been easy. It's really challenging right now with everything going on in the world. I sell a very luxury item, um, but it's been my best learning playground. Like, yeah. And those first six months, what were some of the milestones that, you know, made you think this has got legs? Yeah. So there's, there's probably one of my biggest PR stories that I'm most well known for. So when I started, I didn't have a, a marketing budget. I, I self-funded this on my own. So I had limited, I had about six months worth of, I guess, money to get me by. And so I knew I needed to do something really big and I love big ideas. I think the bigger, the better. Um, and I was like, you know what? I know the Kardashians love sleeping on silk. They've always talked about it in the show. They're always seen carrying, you know, the silk pillowcase when they travel. But their pillowcase genuinely looked like it was handmade. It was it didn't fit the pillow well. It just did not look like it should be on the other end of their arm at all. And I genuinely thought to myself, if I could make something that I love, that I think looks amazing, would I get it in the hands of the family and would they then want to use it and share it? And I thought, I mean, everyone thought I was crazy, um, even having the idea, but I, I genuinely believed in it. And I bought myself a ticket. I flew to LA, hired a car, and I was planning to go and deliver them to Chris Jenner, which is the mum, uh, to her work residence because I had the address of her work residence. What I didn't realize was that she worked from home and it was in a gated community because I don't, we don't have gated communities in Melbourne. So when I got there, I was like, wow, now what? Because, you know, I turn up to this thing that would be equal, I guess, to trying to get into a prison. It's very highly kind of secure. Uh, and I said, I had a, I had a parcel and I wanted to drop something off to Chris Jenner and they let me through. Uh, and then when I got to the, got to the property, there was a big do not cross because she was renovating her driveway. And I was like, oh God. One, now I know I shouldn't be here because, you know, I'm actually in a residence. This is, no one turns up on, even here, without a gate. You don't turn up on someone's doorstep. What do I do? Like, I've just landed from Australia and a UPS truck turned up at that exact same time and he walked over the thing, he was dropping off some boxes. And I was like, well, this is my moment. And I do believe in, like, there's some universal gifts sometimes that we're given. That was one of them because at that exact moment, you know, I was there, he was there. So I was like, well, obviously permission from the universe to just step over. <laughs> so I followed him in the driveway and I, I put my parcels on top of his. He pressed the doorbell. I heard noises inside and then I got out of there. And a few months later, I, I heard from their assistants and pretty much for six or seven years now, we've had relationships with the family. They are constant supports. I think what's really important is I actually had a four-page letter inside that package and the letter shared about my story, about my life about my bigger purpose, about my mission to want to do good in the world and pay it forward to others just like others have done to me. And I acknowledged that what I was asking of them, I acknowledged that, you know, that, that's something that they could commercialise, but I just didn't have the funds. But I made a commitment that if they supported me, I would always pay it forward. And I think that's fundamental to why we still have a relationship with them today. Mm. And what did that do to your orders when they, you know, shared on, on social media? Yeah, well, I think because it was momentum, and this is back in the day, like 2015, there weren't really paid a lot of paid commercial agreements with celebrities and brands and even influencers. They were kind of still bloggers back then. 
Um, so I was very fortunate. This is also when they still had their own apps and they had websites, which they don't have now. But they genuinely were just so happy to get products that they loved to give to their followers. So I would get emails saying, hey, we're doing a giveaway. We'd love to give you a silk pillowcases. They would give you the hero banners on their website. It would stay on there for a month. You're getting all this traffic to your site. Like it was incredible. Like none of this could be replicated now because the whole landscape has changed so much. But over a period of around six to 12 months, it went from me working at home in my study to an office at Chadston Shopping Centre with nine staff. So it wasn't one moment. I think it was a continuation of all the amazing things we were doing together. Thanks for being part of the Care First movement. You may be interested in some free resources that we've prepared at wecare365.com.au. First resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist, which contains all the elements that you'll need to prepare and launch a mentally healthy workplace program and how to build momentum for up to a year after that launch. The second resource is how to support a teammate or a loved one in distress poster. This provides guidance about how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the are you okay conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help they need. These resources can be found at wecare365.com.au. I understand your mother and your daughter were involved with the business. How did that go? Yeah. So, I mean, it's one of those things. Like when you, when I look back and when I started it, I guess whilst I always think big, I don't know if I really, I, I didn't think big enough to know where I was going with this brand. So, you know, mum used to come over just after work to, to help me with the orders. Like, and my daughter was there because she was 14 at the time. And, you know, it's like, we'd be sending stuff to celebrities and she's like, this is kind of cool. I'm sending something to, you know, Ariana Grande or Selena Gomez, like she was in it because it was just a cool thing to do. And it was very humble. Like it was just the three of us hanging out. It was very cool. Uh, And they both still work for me today. So mum, I think one of the nicest things was um, finally being able to give her a beautiful, talking about caring, like the most beautiful employment opportunity, which will be her last because she could retire now. She's retirement age. Um, but my mum's always worked incredibly hard. I think she's been undervalued in her career and never really recognised. And so to be able to give her that is such a beautiful gift. And my daughter's been with me for eight years and is graduating next week from uh, Monash to start accounting at Deloitte's next year. So we'll be going through a transition where she'll finally leave the nest. Um, and I think that that will be that'll be healthy uh, for her more so than me. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. What have been some of the growing pains? What were some things you didn't expect in getting all these orders? What were some of the things that blindsided you or or you just didn't answer? Yeah, definitely having a product-based business, it is a cash-consuming cow. Like it's anyone that deals with, you know, products in e-commerce or just products generally. Just, again, pre-COVID how things worked. It's changed a little bit recently, especially with the impacts of the economy but you always had to pay for things before they landed. And that can be really challenging when you're small and you're trying to scale because you're constantly, all the cash that you're making is being reinvested back into stock. And then if you don't balance that and you carry too much stock, you're then, you know, you've got no access to, to cash flow anymore because it's tied up in excess. So it's just a, it's a juggling act, a constant juggling act. Um, we've just since moved to a completely made to order model to kind of overcome um the need to constantly, you know, the bigger you grow, we had 200 SKUs, different 
SKUs are different products at one point. Really hard to keep them all in stock all the time. Really hard to get a positive cash flow business when you're constantly having to reinvest in so many products. So we've just taken a really bold move in the last month and, and turned our entire business to made to order. Uh, will it work? To be confirmed. Um, all signs at the moment are pointing that a better way to do business. It's, it's better for the planet as well, less consumption. Um, but that is driven by one of the biggest pain points, which is cash flow in the business. Mm. I think another um, another big one really is just like fatigue and exhaustion. Like there's just, I'm in a business where it's e-commerce, it's 24-7, 365 days of the year. I just took my first holiday to, to Europe this year uh, in eight years. Admittedly, the timing sucked. It was the 30th of June. Um, and I had to cut it short by six days because what I realized is you can be on holidays and yes, this whole idea of work anywhere from your laptop. Yes, there's elements of that that are true, but you just can't switch off. Like there's no real switching off. And whilst I have a lot of balance in my life, the problem with e-commerce is if you do take your foot off the accelerator, it has almost an instant impact in your business. And, and that can be really hard to manage. Uh, and I'm probably still in the process now at the moment of still experiencing my second run of burnout. Um, I put up a public, uh, I've since deleted it, but I had a bit of a meltdown in July after Europe. I came back and I said, that's it. I'm selling the business. I'm done. It's too hard. Uh, but really what that was, was just a very open expression of being burnt out again. What do you think is the key to a great leadership team or a great team for producing results? Um, that's a great question. Um, so I would say that you have to treat your employees firstly, like as volunteers, like we talk about this at work all the time. Like even though they're paid, they're volunteering or they're choosing to choose you to come to work for every day. Like I think that a lot of people have that the wrong way around. Like they, my employees don't, owe me anything like I owe them immense gratitude for choosing like there's so much choice in the world we all have choice but they choose every single morning take the pay away take the perks take everything else they make a conscious choice to come and work for me or for, for the business every single day and that to me I think when as a leader when you truly come from that lens that comes through in how you I guess love and nurture your team and how you support them, how you recognize them. It's not something I ever experienced in all of my different careers. I never felt like an employer really saw things that way. But the irony of that is I've left all of them. Yeah. So, you know, if things had been different, um, yeah. Yeah. And um, how do you ensure that people feel free to contribute their ideas? You know, you said you've got lots of ideas and you bring lots to the table, I'm sure, but if someone else brings an idea, how do you how do you determine whether it should be on the on the organization's agenda or not? Well, this is interesting because we've we have so we've done a lot of agile work and a lot of design thinking. We will try everything. Um, because I think sometimes what I might think is not going to work actually might work or something I think, you know, will work, won't work. So I'm not scared of trying ideas. I We foster like an environment of innovation. So no one's idea is a bad idea, I guess. And that comes right down. Like some of the best ideas we've had is from, you know, one of our 16-year-old casual staff that are in the warehouse that might just see something and have a totally different way. Now, there's never really been an idea that costs a 
huge amount of money that we've had to really stop and say, hang on, does this make sense? But generally it's that everyone's ideas are equal. Like, And we also don't have any hierarchy where we work. Yes, people have job titles and they have roles and whatever, but no one's less or more important, like myself included. Like I sit alongside the team. It's an open plan office. There's none of this like. I we have a cleaning roster. I do the cleaning as well. Like it's, I would never expect my staff to do anything I wouldn't do myself. I also wouldn't only ever put my ideas forward because then I may as well just work on my own. So, I guess we just we encourage ideas. Mm. I saw uh, something on the internet. I don't know if it's true or not, but there was an article I think said um, not making money from fifty million dollars business and turnover. Was that true? Or? Yeah, so there might have been a – I actually talk about this in the book. So when I first launched the business, I had a goal and I put it out very publicly. Um, and I will say I studied PR, so I kind of know how to get the clickbait headlines. Uh, I think it's important for any business owner I'd like to be able to sometimes have the ability to do that. But I guess I'm at a point now where I'm like, you know what, I want to get the headline, but then can we talk about the truth behind it? Um, so the truth is when I first launched, I went out and I was like, you know what, I want to grow this to a $50 million business. Now we got it to 10 mil and the point was in the article, I'm not sure which one you read, is that there was a good amount of time, probably it took about four to five years where we weren't making profit. Mm. So it's really easy. Like I truly believe this. It's so easy for anyone to make a million dollars in revenue. It's so easy, not so easy, less easy to make 10 mil in revenue but it's really challenging to make profit. Mm. And so I am now an advocate for, can we just flip the conversation to, it doesn't really matter how much investment you got, how much capital you raised, how much revenue you're making. We actually start talking about whether you're making profit or not, because that's what we need to talk about, because this will break the cycle of businesses being set up and then failing because they keep aiming for these like ridiculous milestones, throwing more and more money into it and thinking, hang on a second, I forgot to check if we have money in the bank mm. after all of that. Mm. Uh, and that was a huge lesson for me. Mm. Like, you know, we, we lost a, a property, uh, about $1.5 million of actual personal cash was put into this business in the end and it was just, you know, not good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've uh, just brought out your book, Self-Made. Mm-hmm. Why did you write the book? Yeah, why did I write the book? Um, it's a good question. I'm so thankful I wrote the book. If I knew what writing a book entailed, <laughs> I would have thought twice, to be honest. Um, but I wrote the book truly to impact. Uh, I'm in a season of my life where I care mostly about impacting others, about helping people, bringing them on the journey. If I can open a door for someone, if I can make somebody's day that little bit easier, that's why I do what I do. So that was really the driving force behind it. I mean, I stepped out of my business for eight months uh, to write to write the book and suffered, you know, it was our first loss in four years. Um, but I did that because I do believe in the bigger purpose. Uh, why I called it self-made is fascinating. Um, it was the night before the first lockdown in Melbourne um, in 2020, and those that are listening from Melbourne will remember this. All the stores were about to close. I think it was 6 p.m. was the start of our curfew, and I called up a tattoo parlour. Uh, we just had our first three donut days of no sales on both of our websites because that was the time where there were no handouts yet. Everyone was freaking out. There was so much uncertainty in the world. And I was like, wow, since the day I launched in 2015, I never experienced zero dollar sales days. And I was like, here we go. This is it. I'm losing it all. 
Uh, the day has come. It's out of my control. Pandemic is bigger than me. Uh, so I called up a, a tattoo parlor and asked them to inscribe the two words self-made on my wrist. And that was a pact to myself that if I did lose it all, that I would rebuild. Uh, and essentially to me, self-made is not a measure of financial success. It is not how much money you have in the bank. It's actually how much fight and stamina you have in you to rebuild your life, to turn your life around, to get yourself out of a hole. That to me is what self-made is. Mm. And and how do you take care of yourself? How do you make sure you've got enough fuel in your tank? Yeah, therapy is so important. Uh, tomorrow at 8am, I'll be having my 31st session of therapy with my psychologist since uh, November last year. I'm really proud of that. Uh, I am also very privileged. I will say that. I think it's a, it's a, unfortunately, it's a sad privilege to be able to get so much therapy now because, you know, yes, we get our health, mental health care plans in Australia and you get 10 sessions subsidized. I think there could be so much more done in the space of mental health. But to me, truly, like I, one, I couldn't have gotten through the book writing process without therapy. I can tell when I need therapy, like, you know, before today's call, I write down all the notes of the things that I need to talk about this week. And it's really fascinating because to me, like speaking with my psychologist, a lot of it will be mindset stuff. Like, you know, maybe it's a really challenging time at work right now, or I might be going through, I don't know, something with how can I, how can I overcome whatever it is that I'm facing at work. And whilst a therapist is not a business coach, often the thing that I need help with is my own mindset around something it's my own maybe I'm experiencing some you know lack of even the book coming out is a big one it's really scary to kind of put something out in the world and be open to opinions on your life right and it's like I need therapy for that I need to be able to say you know it's okay not everyone's gonna like you not everyone's gonna agree with what you're saying and that's okay but I know that I need therapy in order to be able to build that extra layer of resilience and protection for myself around it. Um, some of the other simple things I do, I get out in nature, like ecotherapy is amazing. It's free, costs nothing. Um, every single day I need to be outside. I go to the gym. Um, the gym is something that I think is really not talked about enough um, for mental health, like just moving your body, like moving the energy through your body. You don't have to go crazy. You don't have to do anything you know, get one of the cheapest 24-7 gym memberships like I have, just do something to your body. And it's in that daily, like if I know I've gone to the gym and I've done something for myself for that day, then the rest of the day seems to go okay because I've at least committed to myself for 45 minutes. Mm. Um, I can tell when I've had three days of not going to the gym. I'm like, ah, need, I, and there's that, that's a balancing itself though because I can't, I, I need to, be careful with that too. It's like you can go too far on the other end where something becomes so critical to your own, you know, equilibrium that everything is in balance, I think, is, is what I'm learning. Yeah. I have a keynote um, presentation called Self-Care Isn't Selfish and I talk about three elements of, um, you know, our well-being, our resilience. The first is vitality, which is our physical health, you know, exercise, good rest, good food. The second is intimacy, which is our emotional health, you know, the support we have in our personal and private life and also in work. And the third is um, uh, prosperity or contribution health, you know, that can often come from 
uh, our career, but also the social contribution, you know, whether it's for a charity. I think I mentioned that I was involved in starting and growing Are You OK? for 13 years. And each of those three are really, really important, uh, like three three legs on a stool. If one's in bad shape, we yeah. can still, still fall over. And uh, I, you know, the message is we need to act like VIPs. And acting like a VIP is saying, I deserve to top up the vitality, the intimacy, and the prosperity every single day. It's, and I, I learned that message the hard way as well. I, I had a profound depression for five years. I was out of work for five years. And it was just what gradually, um, you know, got me out. But it's, uh, you know, it's become a real ritual. I, I have uh, like this weekly planner, a self-care planner. Ah, it's very cool. With vitality, intimacy and prosperity. And every Sunday I work out, you know, what's happening in the week ahead so that each of those glasses is full during that period of time. That is really cool. I mean, just listening to that, um, you know, I do a lot of obviously work on myself. Um, I'm a big believer in, you know, you have to take ownership of your own mental health and and you do, you, you really have to own yourself in all, you know, the light and the dark, um, not easy at times. But I think for me, the next process that I'm going through is probably under that is the intimacy part. I think I'm so good at giving to others, um, probably comes from being a mum, you know, so young. Um, but I, I don't find it easy to receive love, genuine love from those closest to me. And, uh, you know, I'm starting my next book called Self Love, which is about my journey back to myself. And that starts with loving myself. Mm. Uh, you know, I can go to the gym, I can, you know, drink the green juices, as they say, I can do all of those things, but it's deeper than that for me. It's like, you know what? It's time to let the armor down. It's time to be open to heartbreak, which is something I've never experienced in 42 years. And the sad thing of that is because I've never let anyone in. So, you know, you, you can't experience heartbreak or heartache, you definitely not experience love. And I'm blessed to be going through that process at the moment with someone and it's really challenging. Um, it's intimacy, I don't know, intimacy even with yourself is, I don't know, it's, it's not easy. It takes a lot of work. And it does take a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really, really does. Um, yeah. No one teaches you this stuff, right? No one teaches you how to have relationships with yourself and with others and how to love, how to receive love if you've never been shown it. But also, you know, just being our authentic self. Um, you know, one of the one of the um, slides or quotes I use in my keynote is from the author and poet Angela Mayhew, and I love it because she says, success is liking yourself liking what you do and liking how you do it. It's such a simple thing, but it is so, you know, it, it really brings home to us that it's a, it's about following our path, not someone else's. And um, and in further evidence of that, you know, there's a, a book by Bronnie Ware, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Number one is that I, w- I wished I lived a more authentic life and not tried to please other people. Number two was, I wish I didn't work so hard. So, <laughs> so they're, they're, they're really deep wisdom, I think, in, um, you know, both what Brody Ware found, but also um, Angela Mayhew, I think I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. You've also, um, through the self-made book, you've launched the self-made movement. You have self-made squads. What does that involve? 
Oh, I'm so proud of this. Like, I'm so proud of this. Um, I just pitched this to a TV network. I'm really hoping to get some momentum behind this. So I think one of the things that I've experienced as a business owner is just how isolating those first few years can be, Um, you know, working on your own, having support around you, not even through the hard times. Like when good things happen, there's no one there. Like, and then you you realise, wow, I'm doing this and and why, and it can be, it's a really challenging process. Um, And just with everything going on in the world right now with people's mental health, I just think it is such a time to get around everyone to kind of nurture, support, maybe this is the intimacy thing, um, and just bring people up the ladder. And if there's anything I can do uh, to help another, that's that's always going to light me up. So this, the self-made squad, essentially it's like Ghostbusters. We turn up in a bus um, that's branded. It's myself and my team. Uh, so you've got branding experts in there, financial help, marketing, um, customer care, myself with PR, marketing, sales, wholesale, et cetera. We turn up to the workplace. If they work from home, they're invited into our workplace and we spend a whole day free of charge and we sit with them. It's very informal. They fill out a bit of a, an application and they share with us what support they need. And often they might think, um, we've received a few applications, they might think it's financial help, but actually what you find out is it's actually they just need a bit of love, right? A bit of encouragement. You've got this. It's normal. We feel you. And we spend a day with them helping with their business, giving them whatever resources. I'll open whatever doors I can. I open my black book, whatever contacts, connections, any way that I can help. Um, you know, we give them templates, the ta- like whatever it is that they need just to kind of give them a bit of a leg up. Uh, so they can do this through the website. You fill out an application and one day every month we go into the workplace and we do our thing. Yeah, that's fantastic. Really amazing. And, and you know, sure it makes a big difference in the lives of those people that you're part of. It's been really fantastic catching up today. I really enjoyed our chat very much. And uh, I always finish by asking, you know, if you knew what you know now, what advice would you give to your 19-year-old self having just given birth to your daughter? Oh, gosh, there's so many. But I think I think the most fundamental answer would be ask for help. Like it sounds so basic. It's actually really hard to do when you know you need it. Um, I just think ask for help. That's a really wonderful message because, you know, there's that saying, isn't there, that um, everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle you know nothing about. We feel like we're the ones that ask for help. But, you know, by asking, it also helps the other person to make their, know they're making a contribution. But um, you may find out things they're struggling with as well as part mm-hmm. of that conversation. Yeah. I'm so appreciative. This has been amazing. Like it just feels very, I don't know, you have a very calm aura to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for being part of the uh, Caring CEO. Olivia, I've, I've enjoyed our chat very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. And we hope you've learned some practical tips that you can try with your team. If you've enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing more details about our simple, scalable WeCare365 mental health training programs, please visit us at wecare365.com.au. We strive to make these programs easily accessible, practical, and ongoing. 
If you've been impressed by a caring CEO you would like to see interviewed, please email us at support at wecare365.com.au. Thanks once again for joining us.